Chapter 8 of The Altar of the Dead by Henry James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Larry Kaplan. He had ruthlessly abandoned her. That, of course, was what he had done. Stransom made it all out in solitude, at leisure, fitting the unmatched pieces gradually together and dealing one by one with a hundred obscure points. She had known Haig only after her present friend's relations with him had wholly terminated. Obviously, indeed, a good while after, and it was natural enough that of his previous life she should have ascertained only what he had judged good to communicate. There were passages it was quite conceivable that even in moments of the tenderest expansion he should have withheld. Of many facts in the career of a man so in the eye of the world, there was, of course, a common knowledge. But this lady lived apart from public affairs and the only time perfectly clear to her would have been the time following the dawn of her own drama. A man in her place would have looked up the past, would even have consulted old newspapers. It remained remarkable indeed that in her long contact with the partner of her retrospect no accidents had lighted a train. But there was no arguing about that. The accident had in fact come. It had simply been that security had prevailed. She had taken what Haig had given her, and her blankness in respect of his other connections was only a touch in the picture of that plasticity. Stransom had supreme reason to know so great a master could have been trusted to produce. This picture was for a while all our friends saw. He caught his breath again and again as it came over him that the woman with whom he had had for years so fine a point of contact was a woman whom active Haig, of all men in the world, had more or less fashioned. Such as she sat there today, she was ineffaceably stamped with him. Beneficent, blameless, a Stransom held her, he couldn't rid himself of the sense that he had been, as who should say, swindled. She had imposed upon him hugely, though she had known it as little as he. All this later past came back to him as a time grotesquely misspent. Such at least were his first reflections. After a while, he found himself more divided, and only, as the end of it, more troubled. He imagined, recalled, reconstituted, figured out for himself the truth she had refused to give him, the effect of which was to make her seem to him only more saturated with her fate. He felt her spirit through the whole strangeness, finer than his own to the very degree in which she might have been, in which she certainly had been more wrong. A woman, when wrong, was always more wrong than a man, and there were conditions when the least she could have got off with was more than the most he could have to bear. He was sure this rare creature wouldn't have got off with the least. He was awestruck at the thought of such a surrender, such a prostration. Molded indeed she had been by powerful hands to have converted her injury into an exaltation so sublime. The fellow had only had to die for everything that was ugly in him to be washed out in a torrent. It was vain to try to guess what had taken place, but nothing could be clearer than she had ended by accusing herself. She absolved him at every point. She adored her very wounds. The passion by which she had profited had rushed back after its ebb, and now the tide of tenderness, arrested forever at flood, was too deep even to fathom. Stransom sincerely considered that he had forgiven him, but how little he had achieved the miracle that she had achieved. His forgiveness was silence, but hers was mere unuttered sound. The light she had demanded for his altar would have broken his silence with a blare, whereas all the lights in the church were for her 
too great a hush. She had been right about the difference. She had spoken the truth about the change. Stransom was soon to know himself as perversely but sharply jealous. His tide had ebbed, not flowed. If he had forgiven Acton Hague, that forgiveness was a motive with a broken spring. The very fact of her appeal for a material sign, a sign that should make her dead lover equal there with the others, presented the concession to her friend as too handsome for the case. He had never thought of himself as hard, but an exorbitant article might easily render him so. He moved round and round this one, but only in widening circles. The more he looked at it, the less acceptable it seemed. At the same time, he had no illusion about the effect of his refusal. He perfectly saw how it would make for a rupture. He left her alone for a week, but when at last he called, this conviction was cruelly confirmed. In the interval, he had kept away from the church, and he needed no fresh assurance from her to know she hadn't entered it. The change was complete enough. It had broken up her life. Indeed, it had broken up his, for all the fires of his shrine seemed to him suddenly to have been quenched. A great indifference fell upon him, the weight of which was in itself a pain. And he never knew what his devotion had been for him, till in that shock it ceased like a dropped watch. Neither did he know how large a confidence he had counted on the final service that had now failed. The mortal deception was that in this abandonment the whole future gave way. These days of her absence proved to him of what she was capable, all the more that he never dreamed she was vindictive or even resentful. It was not in anger she had forsaken him, it was in simple submission to hard reality, to the stern logic of life. This came home to him when he sat with her again in the room in which her late aunt's conversation lingered like the tone of a cracked piano. She tried to make him forget how much they were estranged, but in the very presence of what they had given up it was impossible not to be sorry for her. He had taken from her so much more than she had taken from him. He argued with her again, told her she could now have the altar to herself, but she only shook her head with pleading sadness, begging him not to waste his breath on the impossible, the extinct. Couldn't he see that in relation to her private need, the rights he had established were practically an elaborate exclusion? She regretted nothing that had happened. It had been all right so long as she didn't know, and it was only that now she knew too much, that from the moment their eyes were open, they would simply have to conform. It had doubtless been happiness enough for them to go on together so long. She was gentle, grateful, resigned, but this was only the form of a deep immovability. He saw he should never more cross the threshold of the second room, and he felt how much this alone would make a stranger of him and give a conscious stiffness to his visits. He would have hated to plunge again into that well of reminders, but he enjoyed quite as little the vacant alternative. After he had been with her three or four times, it struck him that to have come at last into her house had had the horrid effect of diminishing their intimacy. He had known her better, had liked her in greater freedom, when they merely walked together or kneeled together. Now they only pretended, before they had been nobly sincere. They began to try their walks again, but it proved a lame imitation, for these things from the first, beginning or ending, had been connected with their visits to the church. They had either strolled away as they came out, or gone in to rest on the return. Stransom, besides, now faltered. He couldn't walk as of old. The omission made everything false. It was a dire mutilation of their lives. 
Our friend was frank and monotonous, making no mystery of his remonstrance and no secret of his predicament. Her response, whatever it was, always came to the same thing, an implied invitation to him to judge, if he spoke of predicaments, of how much comfort she had in hers. For him, indeed, was no comfort even in complaint, since every allusion to what had befallen them but made the author of their trouble more present. Acton Hague was between them. That was the essence of the matter, and never so much between them as when they were face to face. Then Stransom, while still wanting to banish him, had the strangest sense of striving for an ease that would involve having accepted him. Deeply disconcerted by what he knew, he was still worse tormented by really not knowing. Perfectly aware that it would have been horribly vulgar to abuse his old friend, or to tell his companion the story of their quarrel, he had vexed him that her depth of reserve should give him no opening, and should have the effect of a magnanimity greater than his own. He challenged himself, denounced himself, asked himself if he were in love with her, that he should care so much what adventures she had had. He had never for a moment allowed he was in love with her. Therefore nothing could have surprised him more than to discover he was jealous. What but jealousy could give a man that sore, contentious wish for the detail of what would make him suffer? Well enough he knew indeed that he should never have it from the only person who today could give it to him. She let him press her with his somber eyes, only smiling at him with an exquisite mercy, and breathing equally little the word that would expose her secret, and the word that would appear to deny his literal right to bitterness. She told nothing, she judged nothing, she accepted everything but the possibility of her return to the old symbols. Stransom divined that for her, too, they had been vividly individual, had stood for particular hours or particular attributes, particular links in her chain. He made it clear to himself, as he believed, that his difficulty lay in the fact that the very nature of the plea for his faithless friend constituted a prohibition, that it happened to have come from her was precisely the vice that attached to it. To the voice of impersonal generosity, he felt sure he would have listened, he would have deferred to an advocate who, speaking from abstract justice, knowing of his denial without having known Hague, should have had the imagination to say, ah, remember only the best of him, pity him, provide for him. To provide for him on the very ground of having discovered another of his turpitudes was not to pity, but to glorify him. The more Stransom thought, the more he made out that whatever this relation of Hague's, it could only have been a deception more or less finely practiced. Where had it come into the life that all men saw? Why had one never heard of it, had had the frankness of honorable things? Stransom knew enough of other ties, of his obligations and appearances, not to say enough of his general character, to be sure there had been some infamy. In one way or another, this creature had been coldly sacrificed. That was why, at the last, as well as the first, he must still leave him out and out. End of chapter 8